Um, so we're in Daniel chapter 6, and we are going to try to, to get through this. I'm not real good at always adjusting messages when we have other things happening. Uh, so this is a big text. We're going to do our best uh, to get through all this. But it is an amazing text, and there is a danger in this text. The text is, this may be one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. This is Daniel going into the lion's den. Even if you're not a believer, you may have heard this story. Uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, you might remember the flannel graph of this. I'm so glad those don't exist anymore, or at least we don't have them. Uh, but there's a danger. So if you remember uh, this story, Daniel's going to pray. He's going to get it on his knees. He does it three times a day. So obviously the message of this chapter is the power of prayer, the posture of prayer, and the frequency of prayer. And if that's what we think, then we have missed the message completely. See, the danger in this message is that we are probably so familiar with it, we will miss actually the truth of the message. Have you ever been there where you know the story, you know something so well, we don't actually pay attention? Uh, that's a danger. That's a danger for me. That's a danger for us as a church. And this is a powerful chapter, not necessarily about Daniel, but about the God of Daniel. And there is a message that we need to hear. So normally what we do, we read the chapter, and then we pray. Uh, so this is strange for me. We're going to pray first, then read the chapter. And I don't do really good with changing on that kind of stuff, but we're going to try this today. But I want to pray uh, and just ask for God's help, his wisdom, his discernment, his spirit to be with us, that as we read, we would truly see this as the word of God with the message that he has given us. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we come to you now. And Lord, for one, we just praise you for your word. We praise you for the word that you have given us that comes with your full inspiration and with your full authority. And God, we acknowledge our weakness, we acknowledge our sin, that so often uh, we come to your word uh, with wrong desires, we come to your word uh, not necessarily reading to change, not necessarily coming to know you. And Lord, I just pray that as we do come to your word now, we would truly want to hear your word your message, the gospel of grace that comes from you. God, help us to grow in our vision of who you are as a God, as the God, as the one true God. Grow us in our faith today. Do not let us be distracted by other things, but God, increase our vision, our love, and our faith so that just as we see Daniel, we too would stand firm in our faith because of who you are. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. I'm going to ask that you stand. We stand here at the reading of God's word, and so uh, we are going to read through the entire chapter, uh, chapter 6. Verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful 
and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed. And the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, 
Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He rescues and de- he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You all may be seated. Okay, so just a little context. Daniel's like 85 years old now. He's been in exile for 70 years. Babylon came in 609 B.C., overcame Jerusalem in three sieges. They took everyone as exiles. Daniel went in 609. This is probably right around 539 B.C. So Daniel has seen Babylon fall. Now he's under the rule of Darius, who is most likely the same person as King uh, as King Cyrus. And so real quick, anyone over 80 years of age here? Real quick, anyone over 80? I know we have a few. We have a few people over 80. So as we go through here, I just want you to think that this is your life stage right here where Daniel is operating. This is where Daniel is living at. And so just, just keep that in mind as we go through here. So there's a few key verses that we want to hone in on. And I want to take you first to verse 16, and then we'll look at verse 20. Verse 16 is when Daniel is now brought to King Darius and is about to go in the pit. And notice what the king says. May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Okay? Verse 20, Darius runs to the pit in haste. What does he say? O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lion's den? This is the question that we're with. This is the point of the text. Is God mighty to save? It's not about prayer. Prayer plays a part in here, but it's not about God. Is he mighty to save? Can this God rescue. We have Daniel. He's been in Babylon, now Persia, seeing kings fall. Now he's under another rule. Is his God really in charge? Is his God really in control? Can Daniel persevere in his faith? Can we, knowing that our God is with us, knowing that our God is able to help us, is our God strong enough? That's our text. Not is our faith strong enough, is our God strong enough? Now, I just want you to think, relevance of this text. We got uh, people from Judah living in Jerusalem who've been taken captive since 609 B.C. And they've been now living in Babylon for 70 years. Babylon has now fallen. Now the Medes and the Persians. King Darius is their king. So they see One kingdom has fallen. They're now under another kingdom. Jerusalem is still a pile of rocks. What do we do? Do we we keep living as, as Jews? Do we maintain our identity? It seems that maybe our kingdom is gone. And now Babylon is gone. Should we just become Persians? Should we adopt, uh, adapt into the society that we're in? Is there actually any hope for us? Has our God actually been defeated? 
This is the question that many of the exiles are wrestling. It's been 70 years. Daniel's now 85 plus years of age. So this is how we come into uh, this text. And what we want to do is, so how do we answer this question? Is our God mighty to save? So we're going to see how do we arrive at that question, and then what is the answer that the text gives us to this question? And so we see in verse 1, there's 120 satraps, which those are like just the governors all around uh, the place. Verse 2, there's three presidents who oversee them, which, of course, Daniel is one of them. Verse 3, we see that Darius is planning on making Daniel the number two guy in the kingdom. He's going to advance him over the other presidents so that they will report to him, and Daniel will be over all the kingdom only under Darius. There's a problem, though. The other presidents don't like this idea. The satraps don't like this idea. They don't want Daniel to rule over them. Now, why? So a couple answers we could probably come up with that would be supported throughout uh, Scripture would be, well, they probably are jealous. They're coveting what Daniel has. They're they're bitter. They're angry. Like, why does Daniel get this? Have you ever seen that when someone gets a promotion? Oftentimes we're not super happy for them, but we go, why did I get promoted? I I actually do more than that guy. And so there's bitterness, there's jealousy. They want his power that he's going to have. They want the position that he's going to have. They want the prestige he's going to have. And those are probably answers that we could come to. And we could justify those from other portions of the Bible. But in our text, while I think those would be true, uh, maybe the one thing that we really have that stands out is in verse 13. If you look at this, so this is when these conspirators have now come to the king and they're, they're coming to rat out Daniel. And notice how they refer to him. Daniel is one of the exiles from Judah. So what do we have here? We've got some racism going on. I mean, it's one thing if a Persian's going to be over me. Ain't no Jew going to be my, my superior. Oh, I don't think so. That guy's in exile. He doesn't even belong here. Like, I was born a Persian. I've grown in, you know, I've always been a Persian. I've got Persian heritage. You're going to put that Jew above me? Oh, I don't think so. So there's probably some superiority, inferiority type thing. So that's probably the biggest clue that we have that that for sure is happening. And then probably also the lusting and coveting of the power, prestige, and position. So there's going to be a plot. The plot is, okay, we need to get rid of Daniel. So obviously we need to find something wrong with Daniel. But there's a problem again. Don't you just hate those guys that are just really nice and good and they never do anything wrong? Everyone's always friends with them. That's Daniel. Like, like he does nothing wrong, we're told in verse 4. They sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he's faithful. No error or fault was in him. That's the guy we always want to get rid of, right? Chapter 6, verse 22, um, as he's coming out of the lion's den, he says, I was found blameless before him, before God, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Like, he was innocent. He was innocent. So real quick, just... Little side note, the trials we experience are not always a result or a consequence of our sin. 
You realize that? So Daniel's going into a lion's and a horrible, terrible thing. Being arrested, being maliciously accused of things. The trials we experience are not always a result or consequence of our sin. We need to know that. We need to have a category for that. Sometimes they are, but not always. In fact, what we see throughout Scripture is that trials are really a normal part of the Christian life. In fact, James chapter 1, uh, verse 2 will say, count it all joy when you meet various trials because these trials actually serve to grow us in our faith, to mature us in our faith. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 7 and 8, uh, he'll write, trials glorify God, they serve to refine our faith, and they increase our joy. So we see that trials all throughout Scripture are used in incredible ways for God's glory, for our joy, and there's also a benefit to others, which we'll get into a little bit later. But there are trials, difficulties, and pressures we will experience simply because we live in a sinful world. We need to know that. Not everything is a result or consequence of our sin. Sometimes the bad things happen because this world is characterized by sin. And so what do these conspirators do? If we can't find something wrong, if all his books are in line, well, what we'll do is we'll outlaw his faith. So they come to, uh, to Darius, and notice what they say, chapter 1, verse 7. All the presidents. Okay, there's three guys that are presidents. If someone comes up to you and says, all the presidents, what does all mean? All means all, right? Like three guys. All is all except when you're lying. Now, if there was a thousand presidents come to the king, hey, all of us, we might go, what do you mean by all? You know, like 80%, 90%, did you really get all 1,000? But when you have three, all is all except when you're lying. And so they come and they say, We've all agreed on this. It's a really good idea. Nobody should pray to anyone for 30 days except to you, king. And of course, you know, to a king who loves power and loves people worshiping him, says, well, that sounds actually like a really good idea. So what do you do? What do you do if all of a sudden your faith is outlawed? What do you do? Think about this. For the next 30 days, all of a sudden the government says, look, you pray to anyone but Trump. Sounds kind of funny saying it that way. But you pray to anyone but, but the leader of your country, of your nation, you're going to die. And so think about that. You go to work tomorrow, husbands, wives, and you get caught praying. You are not going to go home and say goodbye to your spouse. You'll never see them again. You'll never see your kids again. You'll never see your loved ones again. They're going to take you straight to execution. Would you pray? How would you respond? to that or would you simply say just 30 days a little fasting when it hurt maybe i'll just fast from prayer now just a side note um, now prayer is certainly not the main point in the text but prayer certainly highlights a part of daniel's faith and we can most uh, we can assume that prayer was a big part of his life because these conspirators have chosen prayer as a means to outlaw. So somehow when they look at Daniel, they look at him and they say, prayer is such an essential part of that guy's life. If we outlaw it, he'll break the law. We know he will pray to his God no matter what. Calvin said prayer is the chief exercise of our faith. Prayer is the chief exercise of our faith. So they knew Daniel was so committed to praying 
if we make it a law that you'll go to, you'll go to the lion's den, we got them. Now think about that. What act of faith do you do on a regular basis that those who work with you, those who know you, those who love you, would say that you would never compromise on? Just, just kind of put that one aside, but I think that's a question worth thinking about. Um, facing death has been a normal part of, the, of Christian history. Hope you know that. Like, facing death, normal part of Christian history. Uh, Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, was actually fed to the lions for preaching the gospel. Polycarp, a disciple of John the, of the Apostle John, uh, was burned at the stake for refusing to recant his faith. And if you don't know, more Christians have been killed in this century alone than in all previous centuries combined. We need to know, there's, there's a man, Vladimir, 1970. He was a Christian arrested in China. They put iron tubes around his legs, screwed him in, beat them with hammers until the vibrations broke his bones in his legs. 1990, a Baptist church experienced great persecution in the Soviet Union. The police would arrest leaders, give out fines, trying to frighten the people from gathering. In 1996, Stanley was a recent graduate from a Bible school in Indonesia. He then goes into India to share, or in India, he goes into India to share the gospel until he was arrested, beaten so severely he goes into a coma where later he will die. So facing death, normal part of Christian history, even recent history, and very normal in other parts of the world. Now here in America, it's a little different. We don't face death. In fact, I think you'd be hard-pressed to face death in America for your faith at this moment. Um, But we do face pressure. We do face pressures every single day. And sometimes... Or, and I think that they might be just as dangerous as those that cost us our lives. Because sometimes we don't see the danger in the trials that we go through. Think about just the pressures that we experience. Uh, for one, if you're, you know, let's just say 80 plus years of age, how do you want to live the last few years of your life? Do you want to go to the lion's den? Daniel, isn't it time for some young buck to take the reins? You know, I'll just compromise, and nobody needs to, I'll just close my doors. Nobody needs to see me pray. I mean, like, isn't it time for the next generation to take the stand? We can just slow down in our faith. Maybe we play it safe. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my promotion. I don't want to lose my friends. We do it all in the name of being responsible, you know, family members or providers. Look, I don't really want to talk about Christian faith and my family because, oh, family reunions would be awkward then, and I don't want that. So in the, mo- in the name of peace, I just won't bring up things. So what we do is we're quiet. I won't let anyone know that I'm a Christian. Or I just won't exercise or, or speak about my faith uh, when I'm out in public. Now, whether it's with the football team, the basketball team, whether we're in a classroom or at the water cooler, I'll just be quiet. I won't say about things because I don't, I don't want to make waves. So I won't speak about abortion or homosexuality or lying or any type of ethics or gluttony or transgenderism or divorce or anything that God's word speaks on. I'll just be silent. Or we act like the world. Think about it. As Chris shared, there's a shooting in Florida. What's everyone talking about right now? Turn on Fox News, CNN News. What's everyone talking about? Um, who's to blame? 
which FBI guy is the one who didn't take the, the call that was given seriously? And we need more gun control, obviously. That's what the world is talking about. What do you talk about? Like, we actually know the answer to why that happened, right? Like, the Bible actually gives us the understanding of why people would take a gun and go shoot people. We, we know that from Scripture because of what sin does and how it breaks down society and causes individualism and causes us to hate one another and do things that we see in this world every day. We actually have the answer to what happened in Florida, but do we talk about that? Or do we just, yeah, gun control, maybe we need more of that. Like, that's the answer, whatever side you're on on that. Or who's to blame? No, those are maybe conversations that need to have, but what are we speaking about? Are we using opportunities that we have to engage others with the gospel? Or think about church world here. I'm going to call it like that, church world. Uh, so temptations that we have, or, or ones that might even face me, is, man, if we just have short sermons, lots of stories, lots of really feel-good stuff, and I mean, let's just get that grace and that love and that tolerance, put a little pink bow around it every week, you walking out, and you're like, man, I'm an awesome person. God loves me so much. You know what? The biggest churches in America, that's your message right there. That's your message. And they have no understanding of the gospel. Now, I do hope that you're encouraged by the gospel. I hope you don't walk out there. I'm just scum of the earth every week. Um, but we want to do so in the right way. Like, we don't, must not say, how do I preach so that the church just grows in numbers? No, how do we preach faithfully to the word of God that we grow as God would have us grow? Or, or think about tithing. Do we, do we give? Do we not give? Let's throw five bucks in, ten bucks. Is it actually an act of worship? Or is it just a matter of, well, do I have money with me? Do I not? Or how much can I give without affecting anything else that I want to do? The pressures that we have. I need these other things so I can look like the world looks. So if I give money to the church, I won't be able to do that. Sunday morning attendance. Uh, so I'm talking to a guy the other day, and I'm at, I'm at the gym, and he knows my daughter. And just so you know, my daughter, like Hannah, she can beat you all in any sport. Like, I, like she is like super athlete girl. Like, even when, like, she just got done basketball season. I like to brag on my kids. She just got done basketball season. Like, people from the other team came up every week to congratulate her. And they said, we can't wait to see you in junior high and high school. And how, like, she's just good. And so I'm talking to this guy, and he's like, your daughter needs to be in competitive soccer. She needs to go. And I'm like, yeah, this sounds awesome. So we're talking about it. And so then I, of course, asked the question, hey, do these games take place on Sundays? Oh, yeah, all the time. Cool, we, we can't do that then. And so I let him know. I'm like, man, that sounds awesome. There's no chance that we're going to be able to do this. We gather with the church on Sundays, and my kid can't miss weeks and months at a time. But in the world, that's what we do, right? Because we do it for the good of the kid. We do it so they'll fit in. We do it so they have the best opportunity going forth. We do it because we want the best for our kid. And surely, 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 whoever you want to be, I can't even say that word now. And certainly, that wouldn't be gathering with the church and hearing the gospel every week. 
Do you see the pressures that we, I mean, they're so subtle. We think that they don't matter, but they matter. We're going on a mission trip to Lebanon this year. Some people are saying, well, is that safe? I mean, shouldn't we go to the other parts of the world that are, are safe? Guess what? The safe places are taken. They already have the gospel. Do you know who doesn't have the gospel? The more dangerous places don't have the gospel. So do you know where the gospel needs to go the most? The more dangerous places. So who's going to go? Well, we're called to go. So that's why we go. But yet, there's all these things that we, we experience. And listen, the question is not if you will respond to the pressures in this world. It's how are you responding? That's the question. How are you and how will you? And what it comes down to is the object of our faith. It always comes down to our faith. And before we look at the object of our faith, I just want to address a Christianese saying that I absolutely detest. And so please don't say this to me or anyone that I know, uh, which I know you all, so don't say it to anyone here. Um, How are we going to stand firm in our faith? How do you answer that? Or how do we stand firm? Well, just have faith, right? Just have faith. You ever use that? You can nod your head because I know you have. Like, I've used it. Okay, that phrase might look really good on a t-shirt, might look good on a coffee mug early in the morning. Yeah, just have faith. That's awesome. Um, That is a shallow answer that cannot withstand pressure. It is a shallow answer answer that cannot it's like a balloon with no density to it at all and and as soon as pressure is applied to that truth it will pop we want our faith to be like an anvil where it's dense it's weighty and where all the pressures of the world can come and they can press on it but we will stand firm not because of who we are but because of the object of our faith because of who our faith is in. So if we say we need to have faith, let's unpack that for what it means. It means that we are going to trust more in the invisible realities of who our God is than in the visible realities of this world. Did you get that? It means to have faith is to trust more in the invisible realities of who our God is than in the visible realities of our world. And we can illustrate that straight from our text. Daniel, uh, verse 10, he goes to his house, he gets on his knees, and he prays, and he looks towards Jerusalem. What's strange about that? You're like, I don't know. Where's he looking? To Jerusalem. Now, what's Jerusalem? Is that not the city of God that was built where David was and where the holy temple is and where God has dwelt? I mean, that's known to be the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. But now it's a broken down ruins. No stone is left on top of each other hardly. It's burned. And so Daniel, though, where is he? He's in Persia. He's surrounded by great, thick, strong walls by gold statues everywhere by temples by a king on a throne he sees all of this around him and all of this shouts power and he looks towards jerusalem a pile of rocks and he prays to that god because he sees that the one true god of israel is greater than all the visible realities he is surrounded with. 
You understand that? He's surrounded by what the world says is powerful. And he goes, no, I pray to that God. And I am trusting that he does what is good for his people. And I know that he reigns right now. Even though it's not visible and it doesn't look like it, I trust that he rules and he reigns and he will bring all kingdoms to an end and his kingdom will reign forever. You see, trials serve as a means of making our faith in God visible to the world. So when you're ever wondering, like, why am I going through this? Part of that wrestling is, it might not always be just for you. I mean, let's just think about who benefits from this trial that Daniel's in. Well, certainly Daniel does, right? I mean, he actually comes out of the lion's den. That's a benefit, right? His life, it's okay to nod. He's certainly strengthened in his faith. God has been glorified. Who else do? Well, the exiles do. Remember, they're saying, can we stand firm? Can we persevere? Do we compromise? Do we give in? Do we live like the world? Or do we stand firm in our faith? And they see the God of Daniel. He does rule. He is ruling. It doesn't look like it, but he is actually in control right now. Who ends this chapter in praise Darius does the pagan king ends with decreeing that everyone fears and trembles this God so think about what God has done see the trials serve as a means of making our faith visible to this world and so when we're encountering trials not only is it for our good for our glory or for our joy God's glory but it's for the benefit of the world also and so i want us to look we're going to close we're going to look at darius's praise and and let me say this every act of obedience that you will do as a christian will be when you affirm one or more of these truths every act of disobedience that you do will be when you deny one or more of these truths yes you get it so I'm, i'm trying to help you understand there's importance to what we read right here of what darius says so we're going to knock them out. And if you notice, there's no notes in your screen. There's no notes in your bulletin because, because I didn't give them to Krista this week uh, to do that. So if you want to write these down, that's the way that you can have these. Number one, our God is an everlasting God. So how is it that Daniel is going to stand firm? Again, it's not him, it's his God. And he knows my God is an everlasting God. Look at verse 26. Darius says, he is the living God, enduring forever. Do you know what that means? He's always been alive. He will always live. He's never had a beginning. He has no end. That means he is always present. There's never That one moment he has not existed. That means he sees, he hears, and he knows everything in all of creation. At all times, in all places. Never once has God not existed. Chapter 2, Daniel is praying to God. I need the meaning and interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Why can he pray that prayer? Because my God is alive and he hears my prayer. You do not pray if you don't have a God that's alive. There's no need to. Or if he's not present, or if he can't hear, or if he doesn't see where you're at. But because his God has eternally existed, he prays to him. That's 
why we can pray. So I hope you know, wherever you're at, whenever you pray, the reason you can pray is because our God is alive, and he is with you always. Number two, our God rules over all creation. Look at that. It says, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. Our God rules over all creation. Worldly kingdoms are going to fall, right? Babylon has fallen. Persia now lives. And in fact, if we go back to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had that dream with the four-part statue representing four kingdoms. Do you remember how that dream played out? These kingdoms basically represent the kingdoms of this world. And then we see this rock that's going to be cut out, strikes this statue, crushes all the kingdoms, all of this statue, and we're told it's then blown away. And then what happens? This rock grows and fills the entire earth, which is what we understand is the very kingdom of God, and that it will grow until the moment Christ returns and he brings forth the new heavens and new earth. And then at that moment, this earth will be filled with the kingdom of God, and there will be no rebellion in it, and the kingdom will be absolutely visible in every single way. What we understand is our God rules over all of creation doesn't always look like that but what we see is that God is always working and he's always working to bring everything into subjection under him he's working to the moment where Christ will once again return and bring forth the new heavens and new earth and it's because he rules over all things that we see there's judgment for those who do not believe in him verse 24 we read that all of those who rebelled against the kingdom of God. Those conspirators against Daniel. They're thrown into the lion's den and all of their family. And we're told, before they reach the bottom of the pit, every bone is broken. That's meant to help us understand there is immense torment and anguish that happens in that pit. That is a picture of the destruction for all who rebel against the one true God. And hear this, if you are... I want to just say, if, especially if you're in middle school or in high school, like we need to know this truth right here. Because like you're coming into a stage in your life where you're beginning to experience the pressures of the world, which if we're older, we still experience every single day, but it's hitting them for the first time in a real way, and it is a lot to happen. We need to understand that. And so the need to feel, uh, to fit in, for acceptance, for friendship, of do I compromise on faith? I want to be accepted. I want friends. I want to be popular. I want these things. There's a, a huge, a huge temptation there because there's a lot of visible things around you at that moment. And I just want to say, as we proceed in our life, those things don't go away, do they? Like, we still have the desire, I want to fit in, I want friends, I want to, to know that I belong. We still have those temptations every day, but if you're in middle school and high school, and those things are hitting you for the first time in a much greater way than you've experienced before, know that our God rules. And even though we don't see his visible rule at all times, we understand that he is in control of all Things. And the way we stand firm in middle school and in high school is by not trusting in the things that we see, 
is trusting in the God of the Bible, the God that we, we don't see, who is actually in control of all things. The next one, our God is mighty to save. Our God is mighty to save. He delivers and rescues. We read that in verse 27. Daniel chapter 3, we've already seen this, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go into the fire. They come out not even singed. They don't even smell like smoke. And all throughout the Old Testament, God brings Israel out of Egypt with the ten plagues through the Red Sea. He holds up the, the waters. And they walk across on dry ground, then overcomes the entire Egyptian army. David goes against Goliath and, de- and defeats him. Israel, when they go into the promised land, goes and overcomes nation after nation after nation after nation, all going to the fact our God is mighty to save. That's the point in this chapter, is the object of our faith is mighty to save. The reason we stand firm is because of the object of our faith. Again, it's not because of us. It's not because I just try so hard. It's because of who our God is. And when we trust in him, we understand his grace that's given to us so that we can stand firm. And so think about this. When we're saying stand firm, this is not some illogical, hopeful dream. We have a lot of substance behind this faith. Because we have the history of God's word showing how he has acted time and time and time and time and time and time again on how he is mighty to save. So when someone says, well, that's just wishful thinking or, you know, when you say you have faith, that's like just being illogical. No, it's not. It is actually full of logic. Because when we believe that this is the inspired word coming with the full authority, then we understand these stories, this truth here or this narrative is true and therefore to act in alignment with it that our god is mighty to save is not illogical at all in fact this is the most logical thing that we can do last one our god works in all of creation we read he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth do you realize that there is nowhere god does not whether the visible world or the invisible world, the spiritual realm, anywhere. Our God works everywhere. This is who Daniel hopes in. This is the hope that's then given to the exiles, that they would stand firm as they're struggling. Do we stand firm in our faith now in Persia? Yes, we can. Because we're reminded that our God is mighty to save because they will look at this story and they will hear it and they'll be reminded of their God. And the neat thing is, is that this story is not our primary grounds for trusting in our God that he is mighty to save. Because this story actually leads to another story 700 years later, to when Jesus Christ comes and he is innocent. And he comes and he's arrested and he is going to be brought before a powerless ruler. Pilate. Remember Darius. Repeatedly we see Darius has no power. He can't overcome the law of the Medes and the Persians. Pilate can't overcome the Jews and the people who are before him saying crucify Jesus. And so Jesus too will go to the cross where he will be killed and then placed in a, in a tomb with a rock sealed over it just as Daniel had a rock placed over his tomb. And then just as Daniel comes out victorious, So Jesus, three days later, comes out not just over lions, but he comes out victorious over sin 
death and Satan. So see, this story is meant to actually lead us to a much greater understanding of who our God is and that he has overcome not only the gods of Babylon, not only the gods of Persia, not only these conspirators, not only lions, but he's overcome our greatest enemy, sin, death, and Satan. So we can stand firm. When the pressures of the world come and the visible things are all around us and we go, can we actually persevere? The good news is, yes, we can. Because our God is alive, He has ruled, He has always ruled, His kingdom rules at this moment, and it is growing to the point that one day it will fill the new heavens and new earth. And yes, He is mighty to save, and our biggest evidence and understanding of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because He has stand overcoming our sins, so that if we believe in Him, we too are adopted into His families, made citizens of His kingdom so that we will be with him for all of eternity. Um, as we close, I just want to take a moment. I want to go ahead and ask the men to come forward because we're going to go right into communion. And so I want to ask the men to come forward. But as we close, uh, I want to encourage you to spend a moment wrestling with how have you been living? How have you been living have you been trusting in god or have you been trusting in the visible realities of this world like where are you at and if you need to spend a few moments as these plates and elements are being uh, distributed spend that time in prayer repent and remember this repentance is a good thing it actually gives evidence of, of the grace of god in our life it testifies that we're his children so when we repent don't think oh man this is terrible it's a good thing god is revealing himself that we would live for him that we would continually grow in our faith now if you're here and you've never repented and you're beginning to to wrestle with this and you're saying that man i've only trusted the visible realities of this world if you want to believe in Jesus Christ today, I encourage you, repent today of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ. Confess to him that he is Lord and Savior. And so I just want to take a moment, uh, and then I will pray, and we'll pass out these elements. Father, you are good. You are mighty, mighty to save. And God, you have shown that in such amazing ways all throughout the Bible. In the most amazing way through your son, Jesus Christ, sending him to come. That we who believe in him would have eternal life through his death and resurrection. God, you have defeated sin, death, and Satan. So with great confidence, we come to you knowing that by faith in you, we are joined with you, adopted into your family, made a citizen in your kingdom for all of eternity, and nothing can ever separate us. Oh God, we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.